0: We'll take a look at the next two steps of insight. We've looked at the first two, and we'll look at the next two. The third one is that we're actually discerning cause and effect. Now, I've talked about cause and effect at uh, quite some length. Depend arising is cause and effect, and it is necessary that one sees that cause and effect in oneself, particularly in order to gain access to transcendental depend arising to see the worldly depend arising within oneself. To understand the karma making that which is strictly cause and effect to understand that everything that happens to us is due to causes it's not accidental it's not some irresponsible fate it's not the luck of the draw or anything like that, its cause and effect. We may not always be able to see the matching cause to each effect that we experience, but we can take a good guess at it. We could guess that if somebody is very kind and helpful to us that we've probably done the same to another person at some time. Whether we remember that or not doesn't matter. But the same applies to the opposite. If somebody is trying to take things away from us, somebody is unkind, we've probably done the same whether we remember or not. In fact, we can be quite sure that we have generated the cause. And since it's useless to delve in the past in order to see how it all came about, the only thing that's useful is to recognize that we are now constantly generating causes all the time and each of them will have an effect. In all our waking moments we are having intentions. Some of them are mild, neutral, and the results will be very mild and neutral. Some of them are quite massive, the intention. Some are of a good and wholesome nature, and others are not. We need to recognize the fact that we ourselves are the only ones that can protect ourselves from unfortunate effects. We have to recognize the consistency of cause and effect, and it's not crime and punishment. It's totally impersonal. So that's one of the causes and effects that we can look at. The other two we have already discussed at great length, but we also need to take notice of the actual manifestation of them. The first one are the four components of mind. How each one is the cause for the next one. How our sense contacts are the causes for the feelings. And then the next effect is the naming and then the next the reaction. If our feelings, namings and reactions are very often negative, We've got to watch our sense contacts better. In fact, we can learn to guard the senses, which is part and parcel of the spiritual path. Not going out with our senses to search for something that we can find for them, but to guard them from all that which touches them anyway. And if we do that, we will see that this causes far greater peacefulness because the effect of feeling, naming, reaction has been diminished. So it's essential that we recognize the interaction which is called cause and effect in Buddhist terminology, the interaction of what happens within us so that we can have some more mastery over our inner life, that we are not constantly at the mercy of all the emotional reactions which arise without the ability to direct and control that a little more. This myth of being natural needs to be dispelled one day. We are perfectly natural when we get angry. We couldn't be more natural. We're perfectly natural when we get furious, uh, fearful, anxious, upset, envious, jealous. All of that's perfectly natural. Is it that nice to be natural? The pathway of the Buddha leads to that which transcends the natural. We do not become unnatural. We can become natural, And only that makes any sense. Everything else is just the way we've always been. And if that is the way we want to stay, we don't have to sit and meditate. It's not necessary, because we can remain the way we are without having to meditate. So our next step of insight is an extremely important one, because as we get on with these steps, they become more and more, not so much difficult, but more and more subtle, so that we have an insight into the inner workings of a human being, which happens to be called me at this moment. But we can be quite sure that what happens within us happens in everyone. And that is the understood experience where wisdom comes from. If we don't give that a try, to find out how we ourselves actually function, then we'll never find out how people and the world around us function. And we'll never find out where all this dissatisfaction comes from where all this searching comes from. Now to see these four components of mind as cause and effect has to be an objective observance. And because it has to be an objective observance it makes it easier to look at oneself as if one is watching Another person, which means we are taking a bit step backward, a little distance, looking into the mirror maybe, or just being an impartial observer. If we're not an impartial observer of ourselves, we won't see it. Because it's my feeling and my reaction, so what can I see? Nothing except mine. But if I'm becoming impartial and objective, then I can see cause and effect. And being impartial and objective helps us to see ourselves a little more like others see us. Which may not be absolute truth, in fact it certainly isn't, but it gives us a good inclination, an indication of what there is that is actually happening and not what we think ought to be happening or what we hope is happening. But if we look at ourselves as if we're looking into a mirror, it is more likely to be that we know what is really happening. And then we're not so surprised about the reactions that we might sometimes encounter. And it will make it much, much easier to use the foundations of mindfulness which explain what is going on with it. Now, we have talked about two foundations of mindfulness, the one about body movement and body action, which is one, and one about content of mind, the thinking, which is either wholesome or unwholesome, sometimes neutral, of course, and which needs to be substituted always with the wholesome if it is unwholesome. There are two other foundations of mindfulness which come into play here when we watch ourselves impartially, objectively. The first one is the feeling, mindfulness of feeling, and in this case it's strictly emotion the mindfulness of the emotions that are arising, which are usually the reactions that we have. So if we can, by having an emotional reaction, step back and see the causes that have generated that emotional reaction, we begin to see these four components of mind. And eventually, as we see those four components of mind and no cause and effect, we may no longer be victim to the negative emotional reaction. Because we will see quite clearly it was nothing but a trigger which came through a sense contact. And we are quite impartial about it we can use again the familiar formula, hopefully familiar by now, recognition, no blame, change. When we recognize the cause, which is the trigger, the sense contact, and then the pleasant or unpleasant feeling, and then the labeling according to whatever feeling we've had, and then the emotional reaction, because we're using mindfulness, on the emotion and see the whole sequence happening by working backward because we've passed the sequence by the time we've had an emotional reaction but we can work backward and see it then we will have taken a great step towards insight into the workings of a human being. One trigger after another. And if we choose to react, that's our own choice. But if we react because we can't help it, we are always the victim. And many people do feel like victims. Nobody needs to be a victim. A victim of what? A victim of our own reactions. So we are a victim to ourselves. this is a very impactful insight when we can see this quite clearly because we have seen all there is that is happening in the mind and another thing that may arise at that time if we are impartial enough and objective enough we may actually see that none of that belongs to anyone it's just happening now if that is seen at that time it leads us actually to the next step of insight the other thing which is cause and effect are the four primary elements which I have mentioned quite a number of times during the course and I will repeat as I've Said already and have said to several of you in the interviews. Try to notice, particularly earth and air, those two are particularly easy. Try to notice them as you stand outside, standing still, feeling the solidity and hardness of your feet on the ground. So that earth element is touching earth element and with that touch sensation recognizing these two elements that are touching each other to be the same thing and as they are the same thing extend yourself out into earth and further and further so that the separation and isolation of your personal identity is somewhat minimized, that there's a breakthrough which gives them an opening to a universal feeling, to a totality feeling, which may result in feeling quite embedded in everything that is of earth element around us. Everything that is materiality contains earth element. So there are the trees here. There are houses. There are other people. If you extend your own earth element into that which is around you and then that which you know to be there because you know that the whole planet, except for the oceans, is covered with earth, then there is not so much of that identity feeling which makes one feel so important, so much the center of the universe, so much wanting to have protection where it can't be held, so fearful, so much anxiety if everything around me is all the same as me what could possibly be hurtful who can hurt that which is the same as what itself is so the air element has the same indication the breath going into the air around us and air everywhere that little bit of air that we breathe in and out keeps us alive All the other air, other people breathe in and out, keeps them alive. The same with the animals, the same with the trees. Everything has that same element and stays alive with that. So if we take that opportunity which we have here of surroundings which are very favorable to be together with, much more favorable than city surroundings, because... Really, truly speaking, we don't really want to be one with asphalt and uh, cement blocks and such things, although we are in a manner of speaking. But to be one with trees and earth and grass and air around us is not so difficult. So to take that opportunity and then extend that to other people gives us an opportunity to lose a little bit of our egocentricity where the ego is always in the center and where this center then has the necessity to have protection when we extend outward no need for protection all that's around us is the same as we are that's one aspect the other aspect of the four elements is the fact that We can from this particular method become aware of the fact that all that there is, which has materiality, contains those same four elements that we do. Earth, fire, water, air. And I've only mentioned two of them. We can use the other two also to extend outward. But earth and air are particularly easy to do. And as we see that these four elements come together in different proportions, but always coming together in order to make something which is materiality, body, we lose some of our body identification. The more body identification we have, the more difficult it is to find peace. The body is constantly giving trouble. Little bit trouble, little more. More desires, less desires. Little bit dis-ease, a lot of it, has always trouble. The less identification we have with this thing, the happier we are it always has the opportunity to fall sick and to die. It has innumerable opportunities for that. And because of this identification with it, if we have that to an enormous extent and have the underlying knowledge that this can at any time fall sick or die, the anxiety and the fear is never removed. It's always there, whether we know about it or not. We have constantly have it, and because of this constant anxiety and fearfulness, restlessness is there, restlessness of the body, which is, of course, generated in the mind, because the mind knows about all this. Whether it admits it or not, doesn't matter. So, If we can see that we are no better, no worse than the next tree, what a relief. The tree doesn't seem to worry about much. It's just standing there, isn't it? In fact, it's very useful. It breathes for us. It gives shade. It keeps the soil together. Some of them have fruit. So it's extremely useful. But doesn't seem to worry much, does it? And we're nothing else. We're nothing other than the earth itself. The earth itself feeds us. The earth itself is within us because it grows what we need to eat in order to stay alive. So if we can see the four elements within us with clarity, we can see that they are the cause for this body. And as we can look outside into nature, where the same four elements are visible for us, and we can see the decay in nature, and there are dead trees and live trees, and dead leaves and live leaves. There are all sorts of in-between states, And if we can see that and know that we're nothing else, some of our anxiety, some of our fearfulness, that this body may deteriorate and vanish, will go. And the truth of the matter is that we think we don't worry about deterioration, decay and disease and death but just let it happen and who is the first one to try to alleviate it and to do something about it and to have no other idea anymore except to get the body back and order? so it is one of our great stumbling blocks this identification with the body And if we can see the cause and effect, namely the causes and effects which make this body happen, and then the cause for our identification by keeping it separate and breaking through that separation, we will have gained a foothold into insight. The Buddha said, not that the body has cancer, but that the body is a cancer. There's always something that's wrong with it. Check it out and see if it's true. Don't believe it, and don't disbelieve it. Just check it out. And just imagine for one second only that you could be sitting here meditating without a body. Wouldn't that be a relief? And just imagine that there wasn't any body that needs to be fed and that needs to use the toilets wouldn't that be a relief as constant business with this body this explanation of the Buddha is not designed to dislike the body it's designed to find the middle way a balance between this constant care and identification with the body to see it objectively to see it from a distance so to say as if we are looking at it from over here and then looking at it over there and seeing aha, uh-huh, what is all this it's well worth trying because it gives a different perspective and that's what we need a different perspective Actually, one could probably say, quite truthfully, that insight is a different perspective. Because nothing of what the Buddha said and what I'm saying is entirely foreign to us. It's just a totally different perspective. The next step of insight goes further and deeper like it is, of course, obvious with any progression. Any progression goes further and deeper. And this next one is our attention and focus on the what are called the three characteristics of the universe, of all existence. In Pali they are called the T-Lakanas, T is three, Lakhana are the characteristics. Our mind becoming interested enough, caring enough about absolute truth so that it will investigate one of those three in all situations and experiences. Now, that means that we have gained a very strong foothold in insight. If we allow the mind to fall away from that and just do as it pleases, then we are away from the insight path. Certainly, we can do these investigations in meditation. But that's not enough. Nobody meditates enough to gain enough insight it's got to happen whenever wherever we are now in meditation the best time for the gaining of insight is after when I've had a calm meditation I'm not going to say how calm or how much calm or how long calm just calm after there's been calm meditation The mind has a different quality. After having been here for a week, your mind has a different quality. I'm sure you must have noticed it. It's different from the first day. Or maybe you can't even remember. It changes. The mind changes constantly. And if we give it a chance, it changes for the better. But if we don't give it that chance, it's quite happy to change for the worse. It will do anything that it's allowed to do. So if we have had calm meditation, particularly any of the absorptions, and then come out of that, that is a time when investigation into insight is the most fruitful and investigation into insight in the terminology, Buddhist terminology, always means investigating one of the three characteristics impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness. Now, the words in Pali, anicca, dukkha, anatta, anicca, impermanence, dukkha will keep the Pali word, and anatta literally translated non self, utter is self, an is non. But it's not something that is easily recognised or even accepted as an investigation subject because it's the self investigating non self can't be done. Doesn't work contradiction in itself so instead substancelessness and that is an investigation which can be done and what one does is one tries to find the substance so the first thing is the impermanent part now I've talked about impermanence that was actually our second step into insight how everything moves how everything changes How everything that has arisen must cease. How everything that is born must die. It can't be helped. So whenever a thought is born, that thought will die. Whenever a feeling is born, that feeling will die. Whenever a body is born, that body will die. So there's only cause and effect again. Impermanence as an investigation is a very important aspect. And it doesn't matter which one of the three we take on as our investigation subject. Each one, when penetrated, leads to full penetration of all three. So one can choose which one of the three one would like to use as one's investigation subject. One can, of course, change too, one day this and one day that, it doesn't matter. But, as a matter of fact, most people do cho- choose one which they prefer to investigate. Now, a person who has a great deal of confidence and trust usually likes to investigate impermanence because it's something that one doesn't have to find out. It's there. So being there has not so much difficulty investigating it. Believing it is useless. Investigating it is the way to insight. A person who has a great deal of concentration usually likes dukkha because even with great concentration one can see that the best of meditation states is still dukkha it comes and it goes that's very interesting and a person who has a very analytical mind likes to analyze usually likes to investigate substancelessness and the last one substancelessness, is a one i haven't explained yet and it will come up again and again the other two we have talked about and i've done gone into great detail about dukkha and also about impermanence all three are totally intermeshed that which is impermanent cannot be fully satisfied And that which is impermanent cannot have a solid substance because it's constantly coming and going. So the investigation of this non-self, this substancelessness, and I'm deliberately avoiding the word emptiness because it leads to unending confusion, And we'll come later on, we'll come to the word too. This is substancelessness. Needs to be investigated within oneself. Where's the substance? Where is the thing that can really and truly be proven to be me? And with that investigation, we again need to use mind and body. What else is there? We've got mind and body. And then, of course, if we are fortunate enough, we already have some elevated consciousness in our meditation. So that's also mind, of course, only a higher state of mind. So going back to mind and body. So where's the substance in the body? Is it the earth element? Is that the substance? Is it going to remain? Is it impermanent or is it permanent? Do we have this thing forever? Can we say that this remains the way it is from now on, forever after? Obviously not. When I told you to take the body apart in its bits and pieces, what did you find? Did you find anybody in there? Was there somebody sitting in there there saying, Hello, here I am. That's me. Nobody there. Quite empty, wasn't it? no connection, nothing, just bits and pieces so that takes care of the body it doesn't though it still feels as if this was me that's why one has to do it again and again, and again it's not the first time that one opens this up takes the bits and pieces out and says oh yeah, of course, sure, nobody there and then what? and then one uh, scratches oneself on a branch and then, oh dear, I must quickly put something on there It's very unpleasant. It could even get infected. I have to find something to put on there. Who's that, me? A bit of skin, wasn't it? No, it's me, all of a sudden again. So, again and again, the same investigation. And then, of course, we have this most insidious me, the one which is most persistent, And that's the observer, the one who knows all this. Now that must be me. Because who's knowing all this? And this investigation must lead to the inquiry, well, where is this observer when we fall asleep? Obviously, this observer isn't there then. So what happened? The observer died and then it's born again next morning or what happened to this observer what happens to the observer when we are totally unobservant what happens to the observer when it is completely changing the observation all the time at one moment there is an observation and the next moment there is a different one so we have so many observers That's all very well and very interesting, but it's got to be done by oneself. So the investigation into the non-self or into the substancelessness actually boils down to the fact that we have to investigate whether there is any essence, whether there is any substance, whether there is actually a self we can prove to be there. So we can't look for that which doesn't exist. We can only look for that which we believe to exist and then find out whether the belief is correct. This investigation is a very fruitful one after calm meditation. It's also fruitful as a contemplation outside of meditation. It's a fascinating thing, but fascinating to the mind, mostly to the kind of mind which is contented, at ease, and not trying to get anything, but trying to get rid of, trying to get rid of problems and troubles, of fantasies and dreams, Of ideas and just see the absolute truth the Buddha said there are only a few people who have little dust in their eyes it's the inner eye there are not that many people who want to know absolute truth it could be disconcerting couldn't it to find out find out that there wasn't anybody there the question again and again arises if there's nobody there what am I doing this for well, obviously, to find out that there's nobody there. But, again, the mind is very often not at ease enough, not contented enough to really want to know. It's still in the business of grasping. And as long as we're in the business of grasping, we don't want to know that this is all really myth that we're running after it's a mind-made fantasy the whole thing that we see everywhere with everyone in all situations the mind-made fantasy it's actually Alice in Wonderland and sometimes it all goes very big and then it goes very small just like Alice when she was in Wonderland. Very tiny, very big. And since we like to be like Alice in Wonderland, we also think that we could actually make a real Disneyland out of the world so that it pleases us, so that it is fun and makes, it gives us enjoyment. But every time we try that, we find out it doesn't work. So if we have given up those ideas, and we all think we have, but it needs investigation whether we have or not, then coming, becoming calm and at ease in the meditation makes it possible to investigate one of those three characteristics in depth. Because if, for instance, impermanence is investigated in depth, we can see ourselves moving. We can feel ourselves moving. While sitting still, mind you, it's all moving constantly. If we investigate dukkha in depth, we can see and feel that there isn't a single moment without it. We're constantly trying to escape from it. And sometimes we actually succeed for a moment or two. And if we investigate substancelessness in depth, we will see that whatever there is, be it house, tree, sky, moon, sun, me, you, them, us, all of it is just moving, falling apart and coming together. Nobody there. Only the mind that has had Peace, quiet, joy, can handle that. That's why it's best done after, when I said, the tranquility of the concentrated meditation. That's what the meditative absorptions are for. To prepare the mind to be able to go into depth and see it without any rejection. If we look at these things without the calm mind, the first reaction can very easily be that we are rejected out of hand. What nonsense, I know I'm here, so let's forget about that one. And impermanence, well, some things must be permanent. And dukkha, I've got a lot of happiness also, so dukkha can't be that important. A mind that's not totally at ease will not want to look any further. We can reject this out of hand. But the mind that has the base, the foundation of complete quiet without thinking is a mind that is then in the right condition for this investigation. It may not get to this utter depth. It may only get partially, part part of the way. It doesn't matter. Having done it in meditation, it is essential that one continues that with the chosen one of the three, the one that one has chosen. The one that one has chosen is the one that is probably most favorable for one's mind states. And using that to find out whether it's actually true investigating again and again seeing whether it holds true for everything having seen it and accepted it is an enormous relief from a burden because only as long as we think that everything is solid that there is something permanent about us that we are supposed to be happy and are only unhappy because we are not so clever We are supposed to have something that is really um, an essence. Only that long, as long as we believe all that, are we searching for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which, as you know, cannot be found. So we are constantly engaged in a difficult task which does not bring any results at all except anxiety. So to see absolute truth, it certainly can. (laughs) It can come to you in the space of a couple of minutes. It's like this. If you plant, for instance, let's say carrot seeds in your garden. Well, you get carrots in about four weeks. If you plant the seed for an oak tree, it's going to take more than a lifetime. Many, maybe or three lifetimes until you get a real oak tree there. So we usually plant carrot seeds in our lives, they're usually small small things that we do, even smaller than carrot seeds, so we get the results pretty quickly. The big ones, they take a long time, but for instance, if um, one has given a person a present, one can have the result of that immediately, namely the happiness of having given something so that's an immediate result and if one for instance tells a lie that result may come within half an hour because somebody has found out Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's very, uh, those small things come back quite quickly even less than two hours Thank you. uh, If somebody says something encouraging to one, you can say thank you to that person. Whether it's a direct resultant of that, what you said earlier to somebody else, that's conjecture. It may or may not be. We can't see the exact um, causes and effects that belong together, but we can see that. Good karma has good effects and bad karma has bad effects. That we can see. But the ones that belong together, exactly that we can't see. So, if somebody says something nice, say thank you. That's all.
1: Anything else? Yes?
0: Well, if it's uh, hypocrisy, it's certainly not good karma. If you're saying it in order to be liked, that's not good karma. But uh, if you say it for a good reason, whatever that may be, then yes, the intention counts. Yes. Well, the first step you have already done, you have recognized it. That recognition is already a great step into insight. Most people wouldn't even know. Most people, uh, particularly people who don't practice, but even those that do practice, don't even know that they're reacting unpleasantly, not because there's something unpleasant happening, but because they have a pain which they are reacting to. Now, the way to protect oneself against that is not all that easy, but one needs to give up the resistance to the pain. You see, it's only the resistance to the pain which creates the suffering. Every time the mind has consciously or subconsciously in it, I wish that pain wasn't there, or this is very unpleasant, I'd like to get rid of it. All that creates suffering. It's totally normal, totally natural. But as I said before, being natural does not necessarily make us happy. On the contrary, makes us pretty unhappy. So when the pain becomes an unpleasant feeling, then that's all it is. The unpleasant feeling, not even being named as such, but just the feeling which is there, then it can be disregarded and the other triggers which are happening which are, as you say, trivial, dealt with in their real value. But as long as the mind doesn't want the pain, there's always that underlying um, anxiety and rejection of the pain. And that rejection of the pain will also color one's rejection to others and about other things. Because rejection is rejection.
1: Oh, very. It's
0: extremely difficult. To deal with pain is extremely difficult. It's a um, highly developed state of mind that can deal with pain in a totally fruitful manner. You see, the Buddha said like this. He said, the unenlightened person has two um, doubts that um, hit them. That's mind and body. But the enlightened person only has one, namely the body. The mind does no longer no longer react. But the body is always something that will create unpleasantness. So as long as we are not enlightened, we have that difficulty of reacting with the mind to the unpleasantness of the body. When we are, of course, um, enlightened, then that wouldn't happen anymore. And. Any stage in between the non-enlightened state and the enlightened state, where we gain little more insight, will help us to reduce the reaction to the bodily un- uh, displeasure. Yes. No, if it's accidental, it has no intention. The Buddha said, karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. If you have no intention of doing it, it's no karma.
1: Huh?
0: Karma, O monks, I declare, is intention. So if you don't have intention, that's it. Nothing happens. But if you notice that you have killed an ant accidentally, if you see the dead ant lying there, you can um, wish it a good rebirth. the sensation can be one trigger, the unpleasant emotion can be the other and the unpleasant emotion which results in an unpleasant mental state has been triggered by some sense contact so if you see cause and effect you will see what you can guard yourself against this is another point Um, if we can see what triggers us off again and again we can also guard ourselves, our, our senses, against those triggers. That's another important aspect of guarding the senses. Because not everybody gets triggered by the same thing.
1: Yes. the
0: impartial observation of the four parts of mind? Oh well that has to be an impartial. Mindfulness is always impartial. But as we watch the four parts of mind in an impartial observer type um, way that can be done in meditation or outside of meditation. The four components of mind, yes. That can be a meditative subject, to watch that, and it can also be a contemplation outside of meditation. It can be something that we do, for instance, outside because we have a lot of triggers outside, seeing and hearing and smelling. And here, in, in here, maybe the triggers are pr- primarily touch contact, well also hearing. Let's say you're sitting there nicely meditating, 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 and somebody stomps through the meditation hall. Well, that's a nice trigger. should be very grateful for it, actually, because there's this trigger of somebody stomping through the meditation hall. So what is it hearing? Okay, what's the next thing? Unpleasant feeling. So what's the next thing? Ah, a very inconsiderate person. And then the next thing, I can't stand it. <laughs> So we've got four parts of mind happening right here. And if you're observing as an impartial observer, you look at it and you can laugh.
1: Not
0: at all. Not at all. Something entirely different. The only thing they have in common is the number four. Sorry, I didn't hear the beginning. Yes, the four foundations of mindfulness start out with the body, which is physical movement and physical action. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of emotion. The third one is the mental climate, so to say, the moods, And the fourth one is mental content. Yes, it is, but uh, there are uh, oodles of books written about that one. It's Majjhima Nikaya number 10, the Satipatthana Sutta. So these foundations of mindfulness are the four aspects of ourselves, and I have talked about two in detail, namely bodily, funct- uh, bodily movement and bodily action and mental content. Those two I have talked about in detail. Um, and they are the, the thing that we watch in ourselves, but the four parts of mind are the four aggregates, the four components out of five, which is one the body. So the four aggregates of mind, the four components of mind, which is a much more refined state of watching and gaining insight. And a very important one because it really shows cause and effect but in order to do it you have to have mindfulness in order to do any of this one has to have mindfulness the word recognition actually implies mindfulness but we don't recognize anything without mindfulness you seem to? of course because we only have mind and body certainly do and yet there is a uh, there is a difference between watching the four components of mind happening and the the mindfulness because the the last one for instance the mental formation which is a reaction is the fourth foundation of mindfulness the content of mind so they all interweave certainly but they are not the same thing Mm
1: mm-hmm
0: and mindfulness as such, is, as such is not as penetrating as watching the four, four parts of mind. In oh, Everyday situation mindfulness is fine, but in a meditative situation the four parts of mind are very important. Because it shows us to be, what, uh, to be something entirely different than what we think we are. We think we are in control of our mind, we think we are free agents, We think we are uh, free to choose, we are not. We are reactors. That's an interesting aspect.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, yes. An emotion is uh, something that is full blown. You know already when you know when you're angry. And you know when you're when you're loving and compassionate and uh, you don't know when you worry and you're fearful. But the mental states that's the, the third one, the mental state that isn't a full blown reaction yet, that's just a mental state. If you can catch that you can catch the mental state let's say you catch the mental state of irritation you don't have to become irritated you catch it you say aha mental state of irritation or whatever you want to say and you drop it or you substitute it so when you catch the mental state it doesn't have to become the mental content because the mental content is already the whole reaction can you see the difference?
1: okay, good
0: Yes.
1: i in my there, there is no such thing as an accident. Yes, no, there isn't I know that snails suffer because mm. you put health around able to get the leggings. you think that's really what they I mean, the a the way to know that they suffer because they have to help because don't They always And so, the i actually in that suffering.
0: Yeah. Well, the, thing, the first thing you have to remember is as long as we have a body, we are going to um, create suffering for other bodies, no matter what we do. Because even within us, there are bacteria and bacillus which we have to kill in order not to be killed by them. We can go that far. And then you take your responsibility back down from that. There was a huge controversy in Sri Lanka, which is a Buddhist country where the state religion is Buddhism, whether one should kill the malaria-breeding mosquitoes or not. Well, luckily, they killed them. Well, big controversy. One lot of the people, and the monks, said, no, no, you can't kill them. The other lot said, yes, yeah, but we're going to be killed. So, they killed them to the best of their ability. So you can take that into any lens and discuss it till the nah, yeah, cows come yeah. along. <laughs> and you'll never get anywhere with it. I
1: think
0: yes. In every individual has to come to terms with that themselves because the, the question arises, am I going to kill the aphids on my roses? And am I going to kill the fleas in the, in the blanket or in the cat? And, oh, no. Everybody's got to know themselves what they're going to do. And so if we have that kind of feeling about fleas and cats and uh, aphids and roses, well, you know, let the roses die, let the aphids live, let the fleas live, let the cat die, what difference does it make? Yeah. Somebody's <laughs> going to die. <laughs> You know, <laughs> bodies will die. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to come to a conclusion. Totally impossible. It goes on and on and on. And it always starts with lettuces and holy cabbages. And it goes on and on. <laughs> we have a responsibility to be as harmless as we can, that's all. And our, our main responsibility... Is one that is constantly forgotten. Our main responsibility is to become enlightened. That's our main responsibility. That's what we're here for. But uh, that's something that most people don't even consider. It's okay. That's the way it is. Buddha didn't get worried about it. Anything else? Yes. No, intention is conscious. Conscious, conscious intention. Because we don't make karma in sleep or in dreams. And that's unconscious. So the karma is always, always conscious intention.
1: Anything else? Yes.
0: Well, negligence, of course, you're gonna be punished by law for that one. It's not gonna be murder. Murder is intention. So it's gonna be something else, isn't it? Negligence, manslaughter, whatever else it may be. So in this case law the law takes care of that one. Yes, well, you suffer in your remorse. That's the most thing. I mean, that's uh, uh, the remorse that was that a person would have is the greatest suffering. You know. But then, what do people do when they go to war? They're allowed to kill. In fact, they're decorated afterwards with medals. They get medals for killing. So how that fit in? It's all totally absurd. The whole thing, isn't it? doesn't work so where does that stop where does that stop and begin and end and all that as long as we have bodies because we wouldn't drive a car if we didn't have a body as long as we have bodies there will be accidental or intentional killing now if we drive a car we kill innumerable insects that get killed on the uh, windshield there's a whole slaughter happening on a windshield so what's that intention negligence killing what is it as long as we have bodies we will kill and as we have bodies we must be as careful as we possibly can not to kill unnecessarily the care that we take is a matter of skillful use of the body Some people are more skillful than others, it's also a matter of mindfulness, but the result, there will always be something. So that, knowing that, is another cause and effect which should give us the urgency to practice to get out. Because with these bodies, there's never going to be any way of completely uh, avoiding it. As mainly, the bad karma is our intention. That's the that's worst karma. If we have the bad intention, that's the worst karma. The other thing, of course, when we have remorse for having been unskillful, sure, that's another thing. But that's the way we live. That happens all the time. Yes. Is the life,
1: suicide kill
0: the is killing. Killing a human being, whether that human being is called me or you, doesn't, in the last analysis, make any difference. It's killing, intentional killing. It's quite intentional. It's not accidental. (laughs) Who knows? That's not going to get us enlightened. (laughs) It's not a good thing to do to kill especially as the intention behind it, no? It's a very poor thing to do. And it's always done by a mind which doesn't uh, see clearly. Through despair, as you say, despair can uh, make the mind quite uh, um, unclear and foggy. It doesn't pay to remain natural. The more one thinks about it, the more one can see. The only thing to do is to get out. And getting out does not mean suicide. <laughs> getting out means getting enlightened. Okay.
1: The to to the to yes. do, what do you with animals?
0: Mm, Yes, it's both, it's good and bad. You don't want to see the thing suffer, that's why, because you can't stand suffering. You know, but it's good and bad, it's both. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that your heart contains a beautiful jewel sparkling in all its facets shining and clear giving off rays of light in rainbow colors
1: Look at the jewel
0: in your heart joy from seeing that beautiful jewel in your heart
1: which is the seed
0: of enlightenment
1: it lives in your heart It's only
0: waiting to be discovered so that it can shine forth
1: in all its wonder
0: Place yourself with love as the carrier of the seed of
1: enlightenment. And
0: now become aware of that same jewel. Seed of enlightenment within the heart of the person sitting nearest you. Embrace that person with your love, having that same wonderful jewel within his or her heart. Now, see that shining crystal clear,
1: you jewel with all
0: the rays of light in everybody's heart who is here.
1: And embrace each person
0: with love
1: as the carrier of this wonderful seed of enlightenment. of your parents
0: whether they're still alive or not and see that beautiful jewel in their hearts shining in all the rainbow colors giving off rays of light
1: embrace them with
0: love knowing that the seed of enlightenment is in their heart think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, and recognize that beautiful jewel in their hearts, shining and glittering. Embrace them with love, knowing that they have that seed of enlightenment within them. of all your friends let them arise before your mind's eye and see that wonderful jewel in their heart
1: crystal clear many facets that are shining giving off rays of light Embrace them with your love. Think of the people
0: you know, acquaintances, people at work, relations, anyone you can think of, all carrying the same jewels within their hearts, just waiting to be discovered, giving off a beautiful light. Embrace them all with your love knowing they have the seed of enlightenment within them. Think of anyone whom you find difficult and recognize that same beautiful jewel in that person's heart waiting to be uncovered Shining, clear, all rainbow colors Wonderful to behold Embrace that person with your love, knowing the seed of enlightenment is within that person's heart. people near and far both around here further afield, wherever you can think that people can be found and see that beautiful jewel in each person's heart
1: giving off rays
0: of light and let your loving compassion flow to all these people
1: who all have
0: the seed of enlightenment within
1: just waiting to be uncovered
0: Put your attention back on yourself and become aware of the lustre and the shining of that beautiful jewel
1: that lights up your heart, that fills it with warmth,
0: that wants to be born.
1: Love and appreciate yourself with the seed of enlightenment within
0: making it more and more
1: apparent and visible Love that jewel and love the heart that carries it and the person that has that heart.
0: beings. Be liberated.